I'm Michelle Kelly, editor of Cottage Life Magazine. Thanks for joining me again on the Cottage Life Podcast. It's great to hang out with you. In this week's episode, we're getting our hands dirty. I'll be chatting with gardening expert Lorraine Johnson about the work she does to educate Canadians on the benefits of native plants, which not only look great in the garden, but they're also best adapted to the tricky conditions in cottage country. Let's learn more. Next up, we'll revisit an essay about the native plant that cottagers can't seem to get enough of at this time of year, blueberries. Nature's candy, if you ask me. This is the Cottage Life Podcast, where every day is the weekend. First, though, a word from our sponsor. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. I've spent a lot of time on the trail, and every backwoods trip is a chance to learn something new. And the most important lesson I've learned is that when you're in nature, you have to be ready for anything. And that's why you'll never see me in the woods without my off deep woods insect repellent. It's non-greasy, it doesn't stain, and it uses DEET for up to eight hours of protection against mosquitoes, ticks, black flies, and deer flies. Pack it for your next big adventure, and you'll be ready to embrace the trail without any distractions. Lorraine Johnson has been described as one of the most constant and helpful advocates of putting native plants back into Canadian gardens. She's the author of numerous books on growing native plants, gardening for pollinators, and restoring habitat. And you may even recognize her name from the pages of Cottage Life, where she's contributed as an author and a source many times over the years. She joins me today to talk about what codgers can do to make this world a better place for all life. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Lorraine. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to be here. Yes, I was just saying to you before we started recording that you have been a person who's been in the pages of Cottage Life so many years. I fact-checked what I believe to be the final word on cottage gardening, which I think we published like 15 years ago. It was a big series. And whenever someone asks me about native gardening at the cottage or gardening at all, I say, all you have to do is read these series of four articles by Lorraine Johnson and you will know everything you need to know. And that is that is the honest truth. So it's really good to have you on because... You know, I know there's so much has changed in the world, particularly when we were talking about the environment and climate in, in the time that that's passed since you've written yeah. that article. And uh, I'm, I'm just so keen to hear all about it. So let's start with this question, something that I think is so cool and I'd actually never heard before, but you describe yourself as a cultivation activist. <laughs> Tell me more about that. Yeah, it uh, it's actually a phrase that I came up with because I was trying to figure out what unites all of the work that I do, um, all of the writing about native plants, also all the writing about urban agriculture. You know, I have mm-hmm. I've been writing about food growing as well and food growing in cities and and I co-wrote a book with Mark Cullen about composting. So what is it that unites all of all of this work? And I realized that it's it's all about the the kind of possibilities of putting your you know engaging with the soil, growing things, and the possibilities of that in terms of really having a positive impact on the world. Uh, whether that's, you know, on the ecology of our places, you know, having a really positive environmental impact, but also having a really positive impact on our communities, 
you know, in mm-hmm. our relationships with people um, or the connections between nature and mental health, you know, for each of us mm-hmm. personally. So across, you know, in whatever kind of sphere you look at, there's there are these benefits to actually engaging with nature through growing things. And mm-hmm. so that's that's cultivation. And that's what I'm an activist and advocate for that you know, everyone should have access to this, uh, you know, uh, ability to, to engage with nature by growing food, uh, plants, um, and have access to space, wherever that might be, whether they're community spaces or balconies or yards or um, wherever we might, um, you know, engage in this work of cultivation. There is such a, um, a political aspect to gardening that's not often acknowledged. And um, it's something that I think my work really talks about or tries to put up front. Um, I really noticed uh, during just prior to the pandemic uh, here in in Toronto, my family, uh, we got a plot in a community garden, which is, you know, as you've just alluded to, rewarding on so many levels. But, you know, gardening itself, like getting in there, growing tomatoes, whatever you're growing, basil, like the easiest possible things, whatever it is, uh, it just forces you in a new way to pay attention, to pay attention. Yes, that is exactly it. Um, uh, Pay attention and recognize the way that humans are a part of nature. Mm -hmm. And that paying attention, I think, and just looking and staring. And that's one of the incredible things about gardening as well. It encourages us to just stare and, and watch and observe and I think that cultivates a feeling of connection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from there, I mean, the deeper and deeper that one goes with that, the closer and closer I think we get to the awareness and acknowledgement and recognition of the fact that humans are a part of nature. We mm-hmm. are we are natural beings. We are a part of nature, um, not separate from yeah. nature. And, well, and yeah. I think stewardship and gardening, they're one, uh, that are one very powerful way to, to come to that realization or to nurture that realization or to cultivate that, <laughs> that realization and to really live it, to yeah. live it because it's a, it's a, you know, it's a reciprocal relationship that you have with plants with when you grow things, you know. And I think one thing that I hear, you know, in in respect to cottaging and gardening at the cottage is how often people will say, like, how do I get the uh, deer to stop uh, eating my plants? How do I, um, you know, get rid of aphids or ants or whatever it is? And I think this is the trick. I would say, well, you are you gardening with native plants? <laughs> so talk a little bit about that, because I know that's, you know, for sure, you're the focus of your work is always choosing native plants. But talk about what, what that means and why it's so important. Yeah, thanks for that question, because, um, you know, I've been trying to think lately um, well, and in, in preparation for speaking with you today, I was thinking, okay, well, you know, there are so many different um, cottage uh, communities within the country. So what is it that unites every cottage? You know, some are on lakes, some aren't. 
some are in forests, some aren't. What is it? And I and I realized, well, basically a, a cottage, what we you know, the appeal of a cottage is that it is it it exists, it rests, it's it's within a natural area of some it's sort. It's why we go there. Right? It's, it's why it's why we go yeah. there to experience nature. And so what are our responsibilities to the natural areas in which um, these cottages exist? And um, you know, should we? Uh, I would I would suggest that our responsibility and pleasure and you know the place we're there, um, the opportunity in that is to actually nurture the nature that's there and feel a part of it and engage with it. And the way to do that for sure is by planting native plants. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than, and there are, there are also, you know, when I use the word responsibility, I think there are special kind of, um, um, special aspects to gardening at the cottage, which make the choice of native plants so much more, um, important in some ways in that there are so many plants, introduced plants, so non-native plants that are available at garden centers and garden centers in cottage country as well, that can actually, if gardener, if cottagers plant them, these, some of these introduced non-native plants, and I'm thinking of plants, you know, like periwinkle, bugle, weed, these are um, non-native plants that can leave the garden, spread out from the garden into natural areas and actually really harm by reducing biodiversity in the natural areas surrounding cottages. Okay, can you, so can you just, I'm going to stop yeah. you just to sort of be more specific about what you're talking about, um, because I think it helps people understand it. That So sure. so say you plant periwinkle and it escapes your garden as, as many plants, of, of course, especially yeah. invasive or non-native plants will often do. So then what happens? Like, so is, okay. if you could be really specific about that. I will. So there are plants like, um, so there are introduced plants like uh, periwinkle, uh, bugleweed. And when we plant, if they're planted in a cottage garden, um, a garden at the cottage, they can actually spread out from the cottage into the natural areas surrounding the cottage. So for example, periwinkle, I mean, I have seen it covering the forest floor of the forests that are, um, you know, surrounding cottages. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they suppress what would be the natural biodiversity of the native plants that would flourish in that forest floor, in that natural area, um, that is what draws us to these areas to cottage in, in the first place. And yet, ironically, you know, some of the common gardening activities at cottages can actually harm the very kind of um, the, the very nature of these incredible natural areas that we're drawn to. Right, and I guess also the periwinkle. I'm assuming this. Um, you know, the the other species that exist in that forest have adapted for specific plants. You know, as it's all connected, and then the periwinkle is not among those specific plants. So we don't really know, I suppose, what the harm that you can inflict on you know all of the other species that that you know feed on those plants or that coexist with those plants. Yes, exactly. I mean, the whole the whole thing about native plants and what makes them native plants is that they have these co-evolved relationships with all of the the life around mm-hmm. them and even the the non-living features that you might call non-living like 
uh, I don't know, like the rocks or, um, you know, all aspects of a place. These plants, these native plants have co-evolved and there are all of these relationships and they're so complex. Lots of them, you know, uh, um, you know, we're, we're slowly starting to uh, kind of become aware of the complexity of these relationships. So, and yet, um, you know, when we, when we plant and fill a landscape at the cottage with non-native introduced plants, we're severing those co-evolved relationships. We're not supporting them. And if you think of something as, you know, a, a creature as small as a pollinator, you know, um, they don't travel, like a bee, mm-hmm. a native bee, you know, they don't travel that, um, that big a distance of that, large an area so those you know the the habitat that we create for them or protect for them or steward for them around the cottage those places matter they make a difference to those tiny creatures whose whose lives are spent maybe traveling a couple of kilometers maximum or the tiny little bees or some little travel 500 meters in their whole life so what we do matters and we all know bees are in trouble they need our help more than ever i think so so all of those reasons are amazing reasons to not um, to, to not plant non-native plants at the cottage. But I, if I don't, when I'm talking to people about this, if I don't hook them with those reasons, which are very good, I mm-hmm. hook them with, and also it's less work. <laughs> yeah. So that people like they're at the cottage for two days of the week often, and they don't often want to, they don't want to spend it necessarily doing anything but lying in the hammock. So tell me a little bit about how it's less work to plant native plants. Yeah, well, because of these co-evolved relationships, uh, it means that native plants are pretty much adapted to the conditions at hand. And I have to really acknowledge that that's changing a bit with climate change. Mm-hmm. I've I've witnessed this in my 30 plus years of gardening with native plants. I never used to water. I, I never used to water. I mean, these plants, these native plants you know, grow in the wild without humans watering them. They have for thousands and thousands of years. Um, But that is changing with climate change. Having said that, though, um, uh, native plants tend to be lower maintenance than some of the introduced plants that need some coddling. You know, the introduced plants that will need extra watering, regular watering, um, and so on. So gardening with native plants and creating habitat uh, at the cottage can can definitely be a very low maintenance way to have a you know to have a um, to have if you want to garden. I guess I would at the cottage. I guess I would also say you know for many of us it's a it's an amazing leisure activity. Mm-hmm. But I would say you know I would encourage. Um, everyone to ask themselves, oh, hey, do I want to garden at the cottage? What is it that is compelling me to garden at the cottage? Is it because it's a leisure activity that I really love? Okay, so maybe I'll, you know, have a small plot that I can maintain that doesn't become a burden. Or am I doing it because there's some kind of social pressure? Like, all the cottages around me have fancy, you know, gardens. And, well, maybe the my gardening, my space um, will be a wilder place, a wilder looking place, because that's what 
draws me to this area in the first right. place. And it's okay to have a wilder looking space. And it's okay. Yeah. In fact, it's beyond okay. It's actually Better. really, really valuable mm-hmm. um, to the pollinators, to the wildlife, to the other plants, and on and on, to climate change, to, a, to um, countering biodiversity loss, and on and mm-hmm. on. It's so to improve to taking care of the soil, to taking care of the lake. Mm -hmm, I mean, um, some of the traditional gardening um, methods um, that that are often used with non-native introduced plants or in the traditional gardening kind of, um, well, in gardening traditions include things like synthetic chemical fertilizers, which are disasters for the lake. so, or covering an area with lawn, yeah. which is a disaster for pollinators. Right. It literally offers zero, a lawn, an area of lawn in a cottage area, well, anywhere. Um, it offers virtually nothing in the way of ecological benefits. It's, it's one step up from impermeable con- concrete and that's about it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, you know, their lawns are mowed before they flower, which means, you know, because grasses flower, which means they're not offering any pollen or nectar for pollinators. Um, it's a monoculture. So, you know, we know that biodiversity is the basis of ecological health and ecological functioning. And lawns are kind of the antithesis of that. Lawns. That is absolutely on my list of things to discuss with you because it, it is there a more controversial topic in cottage country? I don't know. So here's the deal. I'll make a, I'll tell you a little confession. The cottage that I grew up at, you know, beloved to my family, um, you know, had been in my father's family for a few generations. Uh, it had a massive lawn. And I remember growing up there, you know, and this was like the 80s when these kinds of uh, awareness, like it, there wasn't the awareness that there is now certainly about a pollution or the environment or anything like that. And we didn't really use the lawn very much, but it was just so big. It felt like the only thing you could do was mow it because letting it grow wild, it, it was almost like a farmer's field. So it, and also it was just the way it was there. You know, it was just as, as the cottage that we all love so much, it just, that's how it is. And as we got, you know, as time went on and we realized how bad it was for the lake, we introduced a buffer area along the shoreline, which is a great thing and really was a nice, you know, there's parts of members of my family who wanted the lawn and there was members who didn't. So this was a, a beginning compromise, you know, which I thought was great. The main thing that when we were always talking about filling the lawn is like, how do you actually do it? Yeah, you'd stop mowing it. Of course, that's your, of course, that's the number one thing you do is you don't mow. But then it does look such like a departure from how it used to look. Like it gets so wild. And as you've said just now, it's a monoculture, like it's going to look you know, kind of ugly. People do often garden because they want it to look pretty. So how do you make it uh, transition to a more um, pollinator friendly space, but not go through, like, I think that is the thing that keeps a lot of people from doing it. It's not so much that they use the lawn. It's more like they don't want it to look bad. So what do you say to that? Oh, there is so much. We could talk about this for about an hour, I think. Um, in that, And I guess I do want to get at this idea of aesthetics and what's pretty and what's not. What is it about a diversity of wild growth 
the plants that might show up, especially in cottage country, I mean, in cities, the plants that are going to show up if you stop mowing are for the most part going to be uh, non-native species. At the cottage, on the other hand, where, you know, they're often set in natural areas, there's a lot of seeds seeding in right. from from native plants. Right. So, so what is it about spontaneous vegetation, whether native or non-native, what is it about it that is ugly? Um, I think, you know, ask, I, I think each of us should really interrogate our ideas of aesthetics and what, what makes wildness ugly. Um, especially when you think that within, okay, so the first year it will look one way very quickly, um, woody plants will start seeding in or growing up. There will be a structure, a natural structure will actually develop very quickly. And I think these ideas about ugly or pretty, I think a lot of them have to do, well, again, we could talk about this for a long time. I think they, I, I think they have, you know, the Western aesthetics that has an, uh, a basis in colonialism and this idea of taming the wilderness, mm -hmm. such a loaded idea. But I also think um, it's support, it's kind of propped up by, you know, a fear that neighbors will think that we don't, you know, care about caring for the land or we're abandoning it. But, you know, the wild, that, that's, that's the appeal of, a, of, a, of the areas where um, we go to cottage, right? Yeah. They're natural yes. areas. So to call spontaneous growth uh, ugly, I mean, I really, I, th I think each one of us can ask ourselves, what is it? Um, what do we, you know, what, it, what is, and also we can ask ourselves, Hey, especially when we start looking, you started with this idea of observing and really paying attention. And I think that when we pay attention to that spontaneous growth that grows up, what we'll see is all the life that it's nurturing. Mm -hmm. We'll see the birds and the bees and the butterflies and these incredibly, you know, not only beautiful, but incredibly important creatures that, um, you know, are a part of, uh, you know, the ecology, an important part well, of the what ecology. We need. Of what we need them. What we need yeah. and, uh, you know, that we depend on, but that also we're a part of. Anyway, so um, that's one thing I would say. And sorry, I've gone on about this no, idea I, of aesthetics. It's a, very, it's a very interesting way of looking at it because I think, you know, you were saying like, why do people garden? I really think a lot of people, I do this myself, like plants look nice. I want, I want my yard or my porch or my deck to look nice, but yeah. I don't think that people think of them as, as functional in the way that you're mm -hmm. describing, which is, which is, I think the thing that, you know, you have to get your head around. So your lawn isn't just about the way it looks. It's actually like, you know, it's like a tree. It's not, it's not just giving you shade. It's giving you oxygen too, you know? So there's, yes. there's all sorts of ways to sort of come at that. So here's another question about lawn specifically. Like say, I mean, maybe this is, uh, I, I'm curious to, I have no idea how you're going to approach this question, but if I have a lawn and I just say through a handful of native wildflower seeds onto it, like, is that a good start? Yeah, it's something you could try. Some of those native uh, wildflowers do have a hard time with the, you know, like the matte surface that lawns can be, but you could also try, you know, 
digging up little holes and planting some native seeds, holes within the, the lawn and trying to, um, you know, get some native plants going that way. You can also, you can actually like let the lawn grow um, and see see what comes up. I mean, there there might be some amazing um, native plants that are there already just waiting for the opportunity to, to grow. Um, so those are some, some easy ways. Um, or you can, you know, one of the things I really recommend to people is actually just look at your, how much of the lawn you do use as lawn for running around on Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how much you don't use. And I bet there is a lot that when you look at that, there is a lot that you don't use. So one of the easiest things to do is actually just to plant some native shrubs, the same sort of native shrubs that you see in the natural areas around the cod in your in your region, and to plant some of those. They, you need to water them while they're establishing, mm-hmm. um, but other than that, they'll there'll be virtually no maintenance and they will be important for all of the co-evolved species, you know, the pollinators, the bees, the butterflies, Mm -hmm. the birds. And that's a really easy way to start a habitat um, where there's currently lawn that you're not using. You can also think about having a ground cover, like, uh, you know, it depends on where you are, Mm -hmm. whether or not this is native to your area, but a a ground cover like Virginia creeper, it's a native vine. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, it is it, it's so valuable. There are so many incredible native moths. You know those beautiful big sphinx moths. Mm-hmm. Virginia creeper is a larval host plant for them, so it will cover an area of lawn. It will it will let's say take over the lawn mm-hmm. and grow on top of the lawn and pretty much suppress the lawn. You could do it that way too. So there are lots of easy ways. You, you sort of backed into actually the next question that I had, which uh, in, in I think it was season two of the podcast, we spoke with an arborist who talked about uh, native trees and making sure that you were planting native trees on your property. And he said, you know, the, I asked him, how do you know what's a native tree to where you are? He said, you just look in the forest, see what's, <laughs> see what's growing the best. And that's probably a native tree. So is it the same with, you know, shrubs or your garden, flowering plants, um, do you, how do you know what is native to your area? And if you can't tell from looking into your uh, forest, um, what are some good resources for people? Yes. Um, the tricky thing with uh, uh, the, there is in fact a difference in terminology between native plants oh. and wildflowers. Okay. Tell me because, that. Because, yeah, there are lots of um wildflowers that grow in the wild without human cultivation that are actually introduced plants. And some of them are, you know, as we talked about, um, they can reduce and um, diminish biodiversity. So they're actually, you know, causing some harm. So what that means is maybe if you look in a, you know, you look around, you might see well, here, I'll use the example of dandelions. You might see dandelions growing. Yes, everyone has and, dandelions. Yeah. And you might think, oh, wow, there's a wildflower. Are you suggesting that I grow dandelions in my cottage, you know, uh-huh. um, uh, landscape? Well, dandelions are an introduced plant. They're non-native, but they are a wildflower right. that grows in the wild without. So the, all that said, I just wanted to, you know, that's an important point. But um, 
you can, and definitely it is a good idea to go to surrounding natural areas for inspiration and guidance, mm-hmm. um, but also to, um, to look to resources, partly because if you're going to start planting these native plants um, in the cottage landscape, then it's very important to not dig them up from the wild, but rather to purchase them from a native plant nursery. And native plant nurse, a local native plant nursery is an excellent resource to find out about native plants in your cottage region. Right, right. And you can find a native plant nursery. Um, there are websites online, and the one of the you know one of the most comprehensive because it goes across Canada. It's called Network of Nature. Dot org. Okay. And it's a website that has a map and with, you know, the location of n- native plant nurseries across the country. So you can zoom in on wherever your cottage area is and find a, a oh, source of native great. plants or, and you can visit their website. You know, it's not even that you necessarily, you know, that the first step is to go there. The first step might be visiting their website, seeing what native plants they're selling, because that will give you a good idea that, oh, okay, these are, these are plants that are um, native to my area. That's now, a great resource. Yeah. Yeah. Now some of these nurseries do sell, you know, it depends on how, you know, we can, there's, there are issues around how you define native plants, the area, you know, is it, um, you know, within 50 miles, 100 miles, is it native to the province? Mm-hmm. Is it like you what know, native, native actually to, means? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a long, big discussion. But, you know, if you're starting out, visit natural areas in your region, in your, in your, wherever your cottage is, visit those areas for inspiration and guidance and to look what's growing there. Um, visit the websites of local native plant nurseries um, or also conservation authorities Mm -hmm. in Ontario, for example, conservation authorities are excellent sources of information. They often have regional lists of native plants Um, organizations like the North American native plant society are helpful. There are um, provincial chapters of native plant societies across the country, the Canadian wildlife federation, world wildlife fund. Um, Lorraine, you're, you're not mentioning, I mean, this is all great stuff and we'll put a list of this in the show notes so you can access it that way, but you're not mentioning something that you really should be, which is, yes, (laughs) you happen to be, uh, you know, Canada's foremost expert. And I know you have, um, I think you probably have a website with all of your books listed on it. I'm I do. Yeah. So is that lorrainejohnson.com? Dot CA. Dot CA. Okay. Yeah. Great. So you have, I mean, just talk a little bit about the books that I know you've, Thank how you. many have you written now? You know, I've written more than 10 books uh, and a whole bunch of them are about gardening with native plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of them are um, books that talk about gardening with native plants across Canada. So mm-hmm. have regional lists for, you know, out West and mm-hmm. down East and central Canada and Ontario and Quebec and so forth. Um, you know, a book like Grow Wild is across Canada or 100 Easy to Grow Native Plants. Um, that's one I wrote that has, you know, native plants across Canada. But mm-hmm. I've also written a number of books specifically around gardening with native plants in Ontario and the Great Lakes region. Right. And um, my most recent one, which I co-authored with Sheila Cola, is called A Garden for the Rusty Patch Bumblebee. And we profile 
more than 320 native plants. So trees, shrubs, perennials, vines, grasses, annuals that are uh, native in Ontario, into Quebec, all around the Great Lakes, and that are perfect plants for for growing in, in the cottage landscape. And we focus on the specific relationships that each of these plants has with particular butterflies and bees, for example, this, those, those webs of connection that native plants are so important mm-hmm. to, and that, you know, that reciprocity between plants and wildlife and the particular species that those native plants support, you know, like monarchs and milkweeds, right. for example, which everyone, knows but, about, but... which everyone knows about. But if you multiply that by like the thousands, probably the hundreds of thousands, probably the millions or billions, yeah. these relationships that are very specific and co-evolved and crucial um, for the way that, you know, uh, the whole ecological, all the ecological features of a place work together. And then how we as, as gardeners or as stewards looking after, um, uh, looking after and caring for land, how we can support those relationships, participate in them, engage with them and, and really, and learn about them and be inspired by them. Well, I mean, it's like we're going to end right now on where we started, which is getting into the dirt and just paying closer attention. And and that's <laughs> sort of what you're talking about. I feel we could talk a, a lot more. There's so much we haven't covered um, in your passion is is making me want to go dig around in the soil. Um, but uh, thank you so much for taking time to come and chat with us today. And as I said, we'll put all those resources, including the names of your books into our show notes. And, uh, you know, I, I can't wait to see what you'll write for Cottage Life next. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Take care. Now, another word from our sponsor. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. I get a lot of questions from Cottage Life readers about my favorite gear for having fun at the cottage. And I always tell them that one of my favorite cottage experiences doesn't require any gear at all. Just a dark sky on a clear night. But when you're stargazing at the cottage, there's one thing that you'll definitely need. Off Family Care Insect Repellent, smooth and dry. It protects you and your family for up to five hours against mosquitoes and it never feels oily or greasy. It also repels ticks, black flies, deer flies, and biting midges. Use it the next time you're savoring the night sky, and you won't be tempted to head indoors before you see a shooting star. I admit with shame that there may have been a time or two when I've made a slightly unsafe exit off of Highway 11 in an effort to get my hands on some wild blueberries at a roadside stand. I can't be the only one, right? Because what's better than a wild blueberry in season? Apart from maybe an in-season Ontario strawberry or a BC peach or many other delicious foods grown across our country. Charles Wilkins would agree. For the July-August 1994 issue, Charles wrote a charming essay all about his love for this favorite fruit. Summertime Blues is read for you now by Pedro Mendez. There are arguments to be made for the strawberry and raspberry. But in my own gustatory opinion, a bias derived from perhaps five million berries picked and processed, the tiny blueberry, Vaccinium angustifolium, is the queen of small fruit, the singer in the band. 
Its name alone is simplicity verging on poetry. And its shape is a teensy echo of the planet itself, which, as any spaceman can tell you, is mostly blue. But it is on the palette, of course, that the little blue prodigy really comes to life. Biting into a mouthful of ripe blueberries is a tactile as well as a taste sensation, each berry releasing its inky ambrosial load with a subtle pop, followed by a burst of muted tartness, then the inevitable rush of fruit sugar that evolves smartly onto the deeper taste buds, flushing sideways and backwards off the tongue and then down the hatch. I prefer my berries fresh-picked, straight into the kisser in handfuls, right in the blueberry patch. But I'll happily eat them from a bowl with milk, on Cheerios, Shreddies, Bran Flakes, stewed. Is there anything in the realm of culinary satisfaction quite like the smile of the stewed blueberry eater? Reduced to jam, jelly, syrup, with ice cream or yogurt, in pies and puddings, on cheesecake or flan, in pancakes, in muffins... I have devoured them with gusto in chutney and on salads in the form of blueberry vinegar. The act of picking berries is, in its own right, a weirdly transcendent experience, a gateway both to wisdom and to idiocy. No emotion is quite comparable, for instance, to the hateful, delicious masochism of carrying on too long, say into the fifth or sixth hour, the head aching from too much sun, the retinas imprinted with blue-dot psychedelia that will pursue you into the twitchy dreams of the wee hours, and the knees, the hips, the back, each by this time a manifest inkling of the galloping arthritis that will eventually catch up with you. And yet you keep on picking, because there are still blueberries to be had, and as yet no one is showing clinical signs of having dropped dead. Similarly, what can compare to the hopeful, agonizing self-delusion that, perhaps, if you don't look at your basket or pail as you drop in the blueberries, or if you pick them into a cup and dump the cup as it fills, your basket will somehow be tricked into filling more quickly? Or the sensory vocabulary of the patch itself, the varying desiccation and swamp, the moss, rock, and lichen, the snapping pungency of the dry-wired twigs being consumed by the cook fire, or the redeeming cool of the lake. Or, farther north, the furrowed forest cuts left by the pulp and timber workers, prime ground for blueberries, the ubiquitous black spruce, the Precambrian ravens and rock. My great-grandmother, a four-and-a-half-foot tigress, thought nothing of putting up 70 or 80 quarts in late July. She stewed them in their own juices, no added water, because this was how it was done. I've been told that she once emerged onto the cottage porch at Clear Lake, carrying a quart sealer of freshly stewed berries, as she held them up for the family's inspection, declaring proudly that they contained not one drop of water. The bottom fell out of the jar, and the berries hit the porch floor. As kids during the 50s and early 60s, we picked in the mossy uplands near the Connell Railway siding at Torrance, Ontario, a few kilometers south of Bala. The horrormeister, David Cronenberg, shot the final scenes of his movie Naked Lunch on the site. All I could think about while watching the scenes was blueberries. It might please Cronenberg that, during the mid-50s at Connell Siding, I found a heavy metallic something, military green in color and about the size and shape of a cucumber, 
I showed it to my mother, who, believing it to be an unexploded mortar shell, ordered me to lay it gently on the nearby moss. It may still be there. The berries, like the prospects for the future, were quite good during the 50s. On most trips, we'd come home with at least a six-quart basket filled. Some days, my dad would pick a basket full himself. If there was a deficiency to his efforts, it was that he didn't pick clean, and that the time he saved in not separating the stems and leaves from his pickings had to be made up later by my mother, who did it for him. My mother, I might add, once stared down a rattlesnake in the blueberry lands northwest of Gravenhurst, Ontario. I had no comparisons for the seemingly bountiful harvests of those early years, until 1991, when I moved with my family to Thunder Bay. Last summer, my wife and five-year-old and I picked 12 six-quart baskets in the timber clearings out along the Armstrong Highway, north of the lakehead. An acquaintance of mine and his family picked a hundred baskets in two days, near Ignis, Ontario. Bring on Cronenberg. Our own picking left my favorite jeans permanently stained in the knees, my fingers a fragrant, ghoulish purple. My wife, who was six months pregnant at the time, sat like Buddha amid the bushes and slept like him on the back seat of the van as she felt the need. The operative word for good berries in these parts is lovely. Exceptional berries are as big as grapes. It's pleasingly symmetrical that the grapes grown north of Superior, the lovingly tended few that make it to maturity, are the size of blueberries. When the berries are particularly plentiful, 20 or 30 to a clump, pickers speak of milking them from the bushes, as we never could in Muskoka. A local friend picks with a blueberry rake, an ingenious comb-like contraption with a liter-sized reservoir that traps the berries while allowing the twigs, leaves, and pipsqueaks to fall through. You can buy such an implement, handmade from sheet metal and solder, for $35 at Lori's Hardware, a Finnish institution on Bay Street in Thunder Bay. Lori himself told me that, at the current price of berries, a rake would pay for itself in one trip to the patch. I believed it, but didn't buy one. Perhaps because, for me, the pleasure of picking is only marginally connected to the number of basketfuls I bring home. Certainly, I have little patience for people who say they wouldn't waste their time scrambling around in the wilderness, not to mention wasting gas on the highway, when they can buy a basket of berries for $20 around here. You can buy all the elements in the human body for $13 from a chemical supply catalog, but it just ain't the same. In my own arcane world, the only reason for buying blueberries would be that you couldn't get them any other way. And, of course, sometimes you can't, even if you spend your summers in areas where they grow. Because sometimes they don't grow. I have heard seasoned pickers expound ad tedium on the whys and wherefores of good and bad blueberry years. A good year starts with a warm spring, followed by a wet June and a sunny July. Or was it a dry June and a wet July? Too much rain kills them dead. Or too much sun. A late frost can apparently do them in. And if there are no bees around, the plants don't get pollinated. Whatever else is known about their comings and goings, a few things are certain. Blueberries will inhabit an area for several decades, then disappear and show up somewhere else. Sometimes they return to an area where they were once plentiful. Clearing a patch of forest will often bring berries. A forest fire, too, will bring them on. Blueberries are one of the first plants to regenerate in the scorched soil. They like their soil acidic. If you don't find berries where you hope to, look somewhere else. Ask other pickers. 
A boom year in Huntsville or Perry Sound can be a bust at Sudbury or Connell Siding. And remember that no matter what the prevailing conditions in an area, there will be microhabitats that experience nothing of the rain, drought, frost, bees, or fire that affect the territory at large. As a rule, a relatively mild spring, followed by a good mix of rain and sun, tends to produce berries. But aspiring pickers should not be confused, much less impressed, by any of this pseudoscientific speculation. A good year is not one in which the rains or sun or frost come in textbook proportions at precisely the right time, or the berries are as big as grapes or grapefruits, or can be milked off the bushes by couch potatoes. As much as any food on God's menu, I love blueberries. But given a choice between the berries and the berry patch, I'll always take the patch, with its implied freedoms, its wilderness, and wildlife. In fact, at the risk of uttering a pomposity, I submit that a good year for blueberries is one in which you enjoy the patch as much as the berries, and perhaps have the good fortune to fill your baskets. A really good year is one in which you really enjoy the patch and get to eat blueberries on cereal and ice cream and in pies and pancakes and muffins for weeks, if not months, to come. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining me. If you're enjoying this podcast and you don't know about our magazine, let me take a moment to tell you why you should subscribe to Cottage Life. First of all, the magazine offers you more of the same great content you heard today, including all of the things you don't know you don't know about life at the lake. And by supporting the magazine, you're enabling us to make this podcast. Podcast listeners get a special deal. Sign up today using the code cottagelife.com slash pod offer, and you'll get six issues plus a free copy of the Cottage Logbook, a dedicated place to record all of the moments that make cottage living special. All this for just $24.95. Here's the code again, cottagelife.com slash pod offer. While I've got you signing up for things, please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast. That way, each new episode will automatically download to your app and will be ready for you to enjoy. We'll have new episodes every Thursday throughout the summer. And if you're loving it, please leave us a review. It helps more people find us. Our sound design is by Amanda Fusco. This podcast is produced by Catherine Jun and me, Michelle Kelly. I'll see you on the dock.